0: Well, today is the the second, actually, lesson um, or sermon in our series, our new series, The Church Defined. Uh, Last week, we sought to begin defining what the church is by asking the question, what is the nature of the church? That is, what is the church like? And last week, we spent a lot of time seeing that the Bible uses the Greek word ecclesia, which we translate church in a lot of different ways. Sometimes when it uses the word church, it's speaking about a universal church. It's speaking about um, specifically uh, the, the church, the true church of God of all time, everywhere. Sometimes when it uses the word church, it's speaking more about a, a local church, a church in a particular community, a small group of believers in a local community. Uh, the Bible also sometimes uses the word church when in in its speaking of what we would call the the visible church, and what that is is what we see, how the church, how you and I see it when we look around at the world and we see those who uh, claim to know Jesus Christ and claim to follow Jesus Christ. That's what we call the Bible refers to as really the, the the visible church. But we also said that the Bible sometimes in speaking of a church speaks of the invisible church, and that's the church that God sees. God understands that not everybody who professes to be a true believer in Jesus Christ and is at least appearing to be following Jesus is not necessarily a true believer in him, but he knows who is and who isn't. And we also saw last week, at least to quite an extent, the Bible uses a lot of metaphors to really describe what the Bible is like. It it really compares the Bible. It says it's like a body, it's like a harvest, it's like a bride, and it's like a family. And so we spent quite a bit of time unpacking those things last week so that we can have a better understanding of the nature of the church. Well, this morning, we're going to continue to try to uh, define the church this morning uh, the best that we can by asking yet another question. And the question is this, is what are the marks of a true church? What are the marks of a true church? In other words, uh, how do you know that the church that you attend or a church that you are a member of is a true church? There are people gathering all over the place, not only here in this community, but around the world. And they, 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 they slap the term church on it. But how does anyone know if that's a true church? or not. And let me suggest this. When the church was young, the, when it was just baby, when it was new and fresh, it wasn't so hard to really determine which church was a true actual church. And the reason for that is because of the high cost of membership in the first century. If you wanted to be a member of the, first, of the, in, of, of the church in the first century, then ultimately it would oftentimes cost you your freedom, your friends, your family, and sometimes even your life all to just be able to pursue Jesus Christ, to be a part of the church. And, and so what happened is most of the time the churches pretty much looked the same. You'd go there, they would all kind of look the same. The people kind of looked the same. Um, the, the language that was spoken was the same. The doctrines were very similar, pretty much the same. But as things begin to grow, as the church began to grow it was much harder to determine and to establish what was a true church and what wasn't a true church. And the reason for that is because as the gospel began to grow, it began to go to other cultures and to other languages. And all of a sudden, the gathering looked a little bit different. And, and all of a sudden, uh, people begin to the church begin to function maybe in kind of a little bit different ways, and people do things a little bit differently. But also, false teaching begin to set into these churches. Heresy began to set in, and so people begin to ascribe to all kinds of errant theology. And so then it began to become more difficult to know who is in and who is out. Now, fast forward two thousand years after. The New Testament, the birth of the New Testament Church, and we've got more churches than you can shake a stick at. Right? I mean, there are more denominations than you can even mention. There are denominations that we've never even heard of that are established out there. There are many churches, even in our own community, who who, who boast in having no affiliation at all with any type of denomination. So when you look around, you find churches of all shapes and all sizes, different kinds of uh, theological beliefs, different organizational structures there appears to literally be just this huge uh, smorgasbord of churches that you can choose from today, right? How many of you ever decided, okay, what church am I going to join? And then you begin to go to all the different kinds of churches, and you kind of say, well, I like that about that church, but I don't like that about that church. And so we went here, and we like the music, but we don't like the preaching. And here we like the preaching, but we don't like the music. And you've got this big smorgasbord. But the question finally is is how do you know the church that you're about to join and be a part of is an actual true church, is a part of God's universal church? Now, let me say this to begin with. We are really treading on very dangerous ground here when we ask the question, how do you know whether a church is a true church? Because there is an essence of arrogance and can be when you ask that question. Hey, is your church a true church or is it a false church? church okay and we don't want a bunch of people running around going hey listen we go to a true church do you go to a true church i i doubt if your church is the true church like ours and first of all that just sounds ridiculously arrogant okay so don't say that all right but it is for each of us rather when we travel down this path we really need to approach it with great humility because if jesus christ loved the church and gave his life for the church then we know that you and I, and we know from the teaching of God's word, that being a part of a local church is a part of God's plan for each and every believer. Because it is through the local church that God uses to to continue to extend grace in the sense that we're being transformed in the image and likeness of Christ. It's where we practice Christianity. It's where we love each other. It's where we're equipped. It's where we equip each other, and we're sent out into a lost and dying world to propagate the gospel of Jesus Christ. Then if being part of the universal church and a local church is that important to Jesus, then it ought to be important to you and I then we need to make sure that the church that you are part of, even this church right here, is a true church. Now, let me explain something to you. This idea, this question is, is, what is a true church, or what are the marks of a true church? That was a very important question during the time of the Reformation. The Reformation occurred somewhere at the end of the 1500s, the early 1600s, right around then. And the reason it was important is because the Roman Catholic Church, at least at the time, was claiming, and still do today, to be the one true church. And the evidence for that that they would give was this, is that they believe that what set them apart from all other churches is that they descended from the apostles in an unbroken line of succession through the appointed bishops of the church. Get that? No. Okay, let me explain that. What that means is simply this. When Jesus says, on this rock I will build my church, the Roman Catholic Church interprets that as them speaking to Peter and saying that Peter was like basically the first bishop, the first pope, there of kind of Rome, and then everybody after that, each appointed bishop or each appointed pope from that time all the way to the 1600s, they say there is an unbroken line of succession from popes, one pope after another, all the way back to the apostles, and they still believe that to this day. So here's what the reformers said. The reformers said, well listen, it may be true. You may have an unbroken line of pope after pope, bishop after bishop, that you can trace all the way back to the Apostle Paul. But that doesn't mean that you're a true church. In fact, you are not a true church. You are a false church because you became a false church when you chose to no longer hold to the Apostles' doctrines and teachings, especially in the area of the propagation and the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. When you got the word wrong... You were no longer a true church. When you got the gospel wrong, you were no longer a true church. So that's what they begin to teach. That's kind of a big fight that was going on during the time. So what the reformers did is they realized, well, then what makes a true church? How do we know if we have a true church or not? So they begin to search the scriptures. And after very carefully searching the scriptures, they came to three marks of a true church, three marks of a true church. And so let me let me very quickly share with you what they are. Number one, it's the pure preaching of the word. The pure preaching of the word. Second, is the pure administration of the sacraments, meaning the Lord's Supper, the dispensing of the Lord's Supper, and also of baptism, believer's baptism. And the third, or let me just say baptism. Okay, I'll explain that next week. And the third is going to be the practice of church discipline, the practice of church discipline. So as they looked through the Word and they studied the Word of God the best they can, in the New Testament they said these are the three things a church needs to have if that particular group is going to be an actual church. So in other words, for people just to kind of get together and have a Bible study, they're not a church according to how the Word of God defines that church. When that Bible study begins to baptize people, begins to handle the sacraments, if you will, dispensing the bread and the wine or grape juice for us Baptists, that type of thing, and they begin to practice church discipline, then that group becomes a church according to how the Word of God defines it. Now, here's the deal. We don't have time to go through all three of these this week, so we're just going to go over one. And then what we're going to do is next week, when we take the Lord's Supper, I'm going to unpack the final two marks of a true church. But today, we want to focus just on the first, and that is the pure preaching of the Word. If a church is going to be a true church, it is going to practice the pure preaching of the word. Now, where do we begin with that? Well, I uh, I want to actually begin with God. God. Good place to start, is it not? Whenever you think about that. If you don't know the answer, just start with God and things usually settle from there, okay? So here's what I want to show you, several things. First of all, God is communicative by nature. Now listen, just stick with me. I promise if you will stick with me, you'll be good. Some of you have already heard some of this before, but notice this. Preaching begins with God, the nature of God. God is communicative by nature. Now let me explain what that means. And you're like, please, yes, what what in the world does that mean? It means that God, when we speak about God, we speak of God in three persons, right? One God, three persons. We refer to it as the Trinity. You guys with me? All right, it, it, very confusing would you would you yeah ways well, one god three persons oh you serve three gods no it's one god but it's the godhead there's three persons god the son god the uh, or god the father god the son god the holy spirit okay that's that's confusing for anybody it's hard to get your arms completely around that but what we suggest is that because god is triune that he's one god in three persons that means that by his very nature he communicates amongst the godhead So what do you think God was doing for eternities past before he created this world, right? Before he created this world, the Father, the Son, and Holy Spirit were, were, were perpetually enjoying the comfort and community of one another. On top of that, they were communicating one with another. We see that in the scriptures in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 26. God said, let us... Now, I don't know who it is that's speaking. God is speaking. Most likely, God the Father, perhaps... And as he's speaking, he says, let us, he's speaking to God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, and he says, let us make man in our image after our likeness. So here before the creation of man, God is already speaking. Who's he speaking to? The Father and the Son. Within the Trinity, they're communicating. Now, I could not say, keep tracking with me, I could not say that God is communicative by, communicative by nature if he was just God Okay, one God and one person. That is, he was God the Father, and that was it. But because he is God in three persons, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, we say that by God's very nature, he is communicative. Therefore, he is always going to seek to communicate. So check this out. So it shouldn't be of any surprise to us that when he creates the pinnacle of his creation, man and women, that he gives them two ears and one mouth to communicate not only with each other, but to communicate with God, their maker, to hear God speak to them and for them in praise, be able to return and open their mouths in praise and worship of their God. Do you see that? And so this whole idea of preaching the pure word begins with the very nature of God. Second, that we see throughout Scripture is this, is that God communicates in many ways. God communicates in many ways. Now, notice Hebrews 1 once again, the passage that we read in the beginning. Notice in verses 1 through 3, he says this. The writer of Hebrew writes, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom all also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God in the exact imprint of his nature. So here's what the writer is saying. In light of the fact that God by his nature is communicative and he's going to communicate, what the writer of Hebrews says is that he has communicated many ways and at many times. That's what he says in the very beginning. At many times, what does that mean? It speaks of progressive revelation. It means that God revealed himself to mankind throughout history, bits and pieces of who he is, what he is like, what his redemptive plan for mankind is, time and smidgen of little truth after little truth over a long period of church history of of God's people in the Old Testament. So he, he spoke to mankind over many times, but the Bible says also in many ways. Sometimes when God spoke in the Old Testament, he would speak directly as he did with Adam and Eve in the garden. Sometimes he would speak through history or supernatural events, like when he was, like through uh, the plagues of Egypt and through the parting of the Red Sea. Sometimes when God would speak, he would speak through writing. The Bible says that with his very finger, he wrote the Ten Commandments on the tablets. And then the Bible also says that he also spoke through the prophet. So he would speak directly to a prophet. Then in turn, the prophet would speak on behalf of God to the people. All of these were equal to each other in significance because they were all viewed as God speaking and communicating to his people. So that's all the author is saying in Hebrews. God has spoken, who is communicative. He's spoken to his people many times and in many ways. You, you, you catch that? Now, here's what he also says. But he communicated the most clearly through his son, Jesus Christ. He says, but now in these later days, in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. He's speaking of Jesus Christ. In essence, what he's saying is God spoke most clearly and revealed most clearly about who he is and what he is all about, and what his will is, and his salvific plan, his saving plan for mankind, he revealed it the most clearly when Jesus Christ, the Son of God, stepped out of heaven, became man, and dwelt among us. Do you remember when John calls Jesus a very interesting name? He calls him the Word. Remember? Genesis 1-1? Or excuse me, John 1-1? Wrong book, wrong testament. All right, John 1-1. He says, in the beginning was the what? Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Who is the Word? Jesus Christ. Now, why in the world does John write and speak of Jesus as being the Word? I mean, that's very interesting. It's the, it's the Greek word logos. It, the reason is this. What does the Word do? The Word expresses something. It reveals something. It communicates something. And so when John says that he is the word, he's saying that he is the ultimate expression and communication of who God is. And that's why Jesus says this. That's why, a matter of fact, the Hebrew writer says that he is the exact imprint of God. That is why Jesus says of himself to Philip in John 14, 98, he says, Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Are you, are you tracking with me? God communicates by his very nature. He can't help it. He's communicated in many times and in many ways. But the clearest revelation he has ever given to us, indicating who God is and what his redemptive plan is for us, is when Jesus Christ came to this earth. To see Jesus was to see God. To know Jesus was to know God. To see Jesus fulfill God's plan was to know God's redemptive plan for mankind. Problem, we don't see Jesus. At least most of us don't see Jesus, all right? Maybe you do after a big... Burrito at Taco Bell that night, you see Jesus coming in your dreams, all right? But the most of us do not see Jesus. Would you agree on that? So how do we hear from God if we can't see Jesus? Well, here's the good news. Where is Jesus? He's seated at the right hand of the Father. He's completed all the salvific work that he needed to accomplish to save you and save me and to save those who he would save has been completed. So here's the question is, how do we then hear from God? Is he still speaking? Yes, he's still speaking to us today. Through what? Through the word, through the written word. God has communicated through the spoken word. He's communicated through the incarnate word, Jesus Christ. And now he speaks through his written word. That's what the Bible tells us. He he speaks through the written word. And, And to those who live after Christ, we have the word. We believe here. We believe at Celebration Baptist Church that the word of God, that, that the Bible is the word of God. It is the holy, infallible, and errant inspired word of God. We view it as all authoritative. Do you understand? Now, sometimes we may be wrong in what it says. We may interpret it wrongly sometimes, not meaningfully. We're sincere in our interpretation of the Scripture, but what we say is the Word of God has all authority. This was what was different during the Reformation for the Catholic Church and for the Reformers. See, the Catholic Church said, yes, of course the Scriptures have authority, but it doesn't have all authority. They viewed church history and church tradition as having even more authority than the Scriptures. So if there was something historically that occurred or if the priest would come or the pope would speak what's called ex cathedra, that means an official sense of the church. When he would come out and say, I'm making an official statement on behalf of the church, the Catholic church would actually say his words have more authority than actually the written word of God. So we are not saying that. What Mike says in Mike's opinion It's not at the same level of what the word of God is. So catch this. When we read the word of God, God is speaking. Did you hear me? When you get into the word of God each day, you want to hear, you say, God, I want to hear from you. God will speak to you anytime, anywhere, as long as you read his word. We're not, our emphasis for you to be in the word is not to hassle you, is not to hammer you, is not to harass you. It's for you to be able to hear from God. Now, I'm not saying that God doesn't speak in other ways. I'm not saying that sometimes there's that still small voice that leads you to do something. I'm not getting into all that. Some people deny that altogether. But I'm telling you, if God is fully going to speak to you, it's going to be through his written word. I love what what, what John Adams says here. He says, it is as much God's word as if it were spoken audibly from his own mouth. If you were literally to hear God's voice, He would say nothing more, nothing less, and nothing different from what he says in this book. It is to be read, heard, and obeyed as fully as any spoken word of God. Did you get that? That's the weight that we feel of God speaking through the word of God that he gives us. Again, it's why we emphasize it so much. But there's another way in which God speaks to us today. And that is through the preached word of God. Through the preached word of God and Paul Paul wrote in 2 Timothy chapter 4 in verse 1 through 2 one and 2 he says to Timothy who was a pastor he says i charge you in the presence of god and of the lord jesus who is to judge the living and the dead and by the appearing of his kingdom to preach the word preach the word this means to preach the bible he says don't talk about it don't allude to it don't reference it preach it Preach it. Preach the words that are in it. Go line by line. Preach what is in the word. Don't just use it as a, as a, je- a jettison point or, or a launching point to say whatever it is that you want to say. You sit down and you preach the word of God. The word preach literally means to herald. It means to herald something. And this is the picture of it. In ancient times, a king would write something out that he wanted everybody to be able to hear. He would give that letter to a herald, a herald would go out and he would say, hear ye, hear ye. And guess what he would do? He would read the words of the king. He says, that is exactly what my job is to do. My job is to take God's word and to be able to, in essence, reoralize it. I take his words, I study his words, and then I turn around and I speak his words to you. That's what the command of God is for every preacher. And then catch this, this is what I want you to get. When I get it right, when it's real, when I preach to you and reoralize the word of God in the accurate way to you, it is though God himself is speaking face to face with you. Now, we're going to get to that in just a minute, but he, here's the question. But how do we know if a person standing before us is preaching the word of God? You know, one thing that I've found is, is that most preachers believe they're preaching the word. In fact, if you go up to them and say, man, I really wish you'd preach the word, they would find that offensive. You got that, right? right? Hey, you preach the word. I've never been a part of a church that didn't boast in preaching the word. But here's the truth of the matter is not everybody is consistently preaching the word of God. How would you know? How would you know if somebody is preaching the word of God? Remember what our point is. A person, a real church, is going to be marked by the pure preaching of the word of God. How do you know whether he's preaching the word of God? Let me give you a list of helpful points that I think will help. First of all, when you're listening to somebody preaching, listen for the context. Listen for the context. If he's preaching the word of God, and you're going through the book of Mark, or you're going through another book, what is he saying about that text? Is he telling you what the purpose of the author was? Is he telling you what came before it? Is he telling you why it was written, to whom it was written? Is he, is he writing it the whole purpose of why this author is writing this book? If he doesn't give you those things, then you've got to find it out by yourself. But a preacher should give the appropriate context. Here's why. Because if you don't understand the context, you can't understand the true meaning of the text of Scripture. Here's number two. Listen for the authorial intent. Listen to the authorial intent. Now, here's here's a saying that we had in, in preaching class many, many moons ago. A guy would sit there and go, hey, brother, that will preach. He goes, it shouldn't, but it will preach. Now, this is what he means by that. There are many things that people will take out of context and they'll take and they'll find a passage of scripture and they'll preach it and it sounds really, really good but it has nothing to do with the original intent of the author who wrote it. Let me explain what I mean by the authorial intent. When the scriptures were written, that author who wrote it had a point to what he was writing. Not only the human author but also the divine author, the Holy Spirit. In fact, the Word of God tells us very clearly in the word, in Second Peter 1:20. He says knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So you've got to ask yourself the question, and this is what I do when I get done writing every sermon. Here's what I do. If I was preaching through the book of Mark and Mark himself was sitting down, and Paul, who actually is the one who was behind the writing of it. If Paul was sitting in the congregation and I got done preaching it and I looked at it, Paul, would Paul sit there and go, right on, brother, that's exactly what I intended that to mean? Or would he sit there and go, dude, what the heck are you talking about? All right? Is, what is the authorial intent? Is that what the author ultimately intended? Here's another thing I think will help you. Listen for God's stuff, not good stuff. Listen for God's stuff, not good stuff. Now, this is the epidemic in the church today. People are flocking to churches that preach a lot of good stuff. What do I mean the difference between the two? Jim Shaddix, in his book, he gives us a distinction between the two. He says, God's stuff is this. It's the body of truth that is revealed in the Bible, given for the purpose of godliness and righteousness. So it's the word of God. Good stuff is helpful advice in life that is comprised of information or principles gleaned from simple observations and research. So here's what people want to hear about all the church. Hey, when are you going to preach again on how to get along with your spouse? That's what I want to know, right? Hey, when is the next time you're going to preach on how to rear and raise your children and discipline your children? Hey, when's the next time that you're going to show us how to ultimately manage our money? Now, let me say this. I believe that the word of God does address each of those things, but not Nine to 10 weeks worth of stuff on those particular subjects. Are you with me? The Bible just doesn't say very much. So what is the person saying for eight or 10 weeks when he's talking about rearing the children and how they discipline them? What he's doing is he's using a little bit of the scriptures, but then what he's using is he's using truth that he's found in revelation and experience and in, in psychological books and, and people who have written on how to raise and rear your children. So what are they doing? They're not preaching The Word of God. That's good stuff. It might be helpful, but guess what? That's not what the man of God, the preacher of God's church is supposed to be doing. He is supposed to be preaching what? God's stuff, not good stuff. Here's one more point that I want to give you with this. When somebody is preaching, listen for Jesus. Listen for Jesus. The first church that I ever went to was a small little church um, back down in Bradenton, Florida. I don't know if you know where that is. doesn't really matter. Uh, it was this teeny little church, and it was where we first got saved, first got baptized. And, and I remember going, and I remember listening to this preacher, and it didn't matter where he was, and it started to bug me just a little bit. Because no matter where he was, Old Testament, New Testament, if he was in Judges, or if he was in Wisdom Literature or whatever, somehow Jesus kept coming up. Right, And I'm like, dude, Jesus is not there. He's not in this text. How in the world do we go from sacrificing this individual over to Jesus? How in the world do we go from the law to Jesus? How in the world do we go from Balaam and the donkey to Jesus? How in the world does Jesus keep popping up? And so what I did was I kept sitting there going, man, I think... I was a strange child, but I kept beginning to think that he was trying to pull one over on me, right? I mean, I, I'm like, dude, okay, you keep bringing up Jesus, but Jesus isn't even mentioned in the text. But here's what I understand, or what I came to understand later, is all of the word of God is about Jesus Christ. Here's why. The Bible, the whole Bible from Genesis to Revelation, is, God's, is a picture of God's redemptive plan for mankind. And who is at the center of that redemption? But the person of Jesus Christ. So when we look through the word of God and we see stories there of Abraham uh, sacrificing his son Isaac, what do we see? Jesus. When we sit there and Abraham, and we talk about the sacrificial system in the Old Testament law, who do we see? Jesus. When the story of David and Goliath, who do we see? Not five points to how to overcome the giants in your life, but what do we see? We see Jesus. When we hear the story of Samson sacrificing his life and being crushed underneath the weight of the temple for the purpose of redeeming his people and saving his people, who do we see there? Jesus. Truth of the matter is all of this. Listen for Jesus. Listen to Jesus' words. In Luke chapter 24 and verse 27, actually the reference, the writer of Luke says this. He says, In beginning, after Jesus' death and resurrection... He's traveling on the road to Emmaus. He appears to a group of disciples. And he says, In beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning him. Then in Luke chapter 24 and verse 44, he then said this. He says, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and in the prophets And in the Psalms, must be fulfilled. What Jesus was saying is, everything that is written in the word of God points to me. It's but a shadow. I'm the object. So here's the question. Can you preach a Christian message apart from the message of Jesus Christ? No. And so oftentimes, it's amazing how many messages I've heard preached apart from the gospel apart from mention of Jesus Christ. It could tell you what to do is right and what to do is wrong, but if there is no mention of Christ and the completed work of Jesus Christ, it's simply not a Christian message. Now, let me say this, and time is just about out. Let me say this last thing. Why in the world would we preach the word? Why not good stuff? Why preach the word? Let me say it very simply here. It's because the word of God brings life. Because the word of God brings life. In Genesis one uh, 1-1, or 111, it says this, and God said in the creation account, "Let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit, trees bearing fruit, in which is their seed, each according to its own kind. And notice this, and it was so. God said, "Let there be trees, let there be fruit." And He said it, and it happened. That's power. That's life in the very words of God. Can you imagine saying that? I mean, I wish I had that kind of power with my children, right? Go to your room, and it it happens. That's great power, but that doesn't happen. God creates something out of nothing simply with his words. There's life in his words. Then we find out in Genesis chapter 2, and verse 7, the Bible says, Then the Lord God formed the man of dust, from the ground, and he breathed into its nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. So you see the picture. As the words come out of God's mouth, as the breath comes out of God's mouth, so does what? Life comes out of his mouth and is created. And so we see this in Genesis chapter two and verse seven. It says, then the Lord got, oh, I'm sorry. And then, and then what we see, I'm sorry, go to the New Testament, and Paul ends up writing to Timothy, and this is what he says to them. He says, all scripture is breathed out by God. So what he's saying is, hey listen, the scripture is breathed out by God. He's not only saying the origin is from God, he's also letting us know what it accomplishes. And what it does is it brings forth life. The word of God brings forth life, he says. And so this is why we preach the word. It brings forth life. Life comes through the preaching of word. You go to a church that may appear alive, but if they're not preaching the word, there is no true life perfect example of this is in Ezekiel chapter 37. One of my greatest illustrations and stories in all the Bible. There is Ezekiel, and the whole nation of Israel has basically rebelled and turned their backs on God. And he sits there, and it's, in, it's a vision, basically. He has a vision, and he says, look out into the valley. He looks out into the valley, and it's full of dry, disgusting bones as far as the eye can see. And he says, can those bones live? Can those bones live? And he goes, mm. Only you know, Lord. In other words, he's saying, there ain't no way those bones can live, but God, if you say they can live, then they can live. All right, that's what he's saying. And he says, this is what I want you to do. I want you to prophesy to the bones. Prophesy, speak to the bones. You know what prophesy means? It means to preach to the bones. Preach my word to the bones. So here he goes up. Sometimes I felt like this, not at this church, but other churches, that I was preaching to dry bones, okay? And so when, I, when he gets up, he begins to preach to the dry bones, and all of a sudden, the dry bones begin to rattle. And all of a sudden they begin to form and they begin to come together and all of a sudden tendons begin to jump on and all of a sudden uh, a, a muscle begins to form and then skin begins to form and then the, the breath, the wind, the Holy Spirit comes and infuses life into them and then he looks before them and there's this great nation and this great army of living, breathing people. And so the idea is this, is that the first primary mark of any true church is that they must They must, they must preach the word of God. Now listen, when I get up on Sunday morning and when I get it right, God is speaking. Is that how you view the preaching event? Is that how you view it? Because the truth of the matter is, let me tell you what I really think happens. I think some of us are just kind of on autopilot. Hey, it's ready to get in the car. Get in the get, get. We need to make sure we get there. Let's get to the house of God. We're hoping that we hear something. We hope that Brother Mike is going to be funny this week. Maybe he's going to say something that's going to help our marriage. Maybe he's going to do something that's going to be really, really good. But what I'm saying is, and it's interesting because, look, I'm not trying to dog on anybody, but we kind of come in late. People are pulling up, you know, throwing their kids out of the car before it ever stops to get a good parking spot. You know, it's okay, kids, just you know, limp it off, walk it off, just get to the house. People are kind of coming in. We're not really, how should we come to the house of God? We should come expectantly. We should come into the house of God sitting there and saying, if he gets it right, then God is going to speak. And this is not just for you tonight to sit back and go, am I going to accept it if I'm not? If it's God's word, we must humble ourselves under it. You know what else it means? It means that you ought to be praying all week for this guy. You ought to be praying because I need to be able to get it right. Because if I don't get it right, guess what? There is no life. If I preach the true word of God, then there is life. Are you with me? That's what you want to make sure that ultimately happens. And so let me just end with this idea. It is your responsibility to whatever church you are a part of to make sure that it is preaching the word of God. If it is not, it's not a true church. Now, you sit there and you go, well, how do we know? Go back to those points that I've given you not good stuff but god stuff are they preaching the context are they preaching are they preaching the authorial intent is it christ centered does it tell us something about jesus is it is it preparing and proclaiming the gospel of jesus christ if it is then we have confidence in that let me say this last thing and we'll end if he's going to preach the gospel what is the gospel because here's what somebody will ultimately say they'll say how much error can a church preach and still be a Christian church? That's a great question, isn't it? Because do you want to know something? And I'm just going to let you in on this. Sometimes I preach error, not intentionally. Sometimes I just say something, and my my mind is working faster than my mouth, and sometimes I get discombobulated, and sometimes, sometimes things don't come out right. Sometimes I just don't know the absolute truth, even though I think I do. Are you with me? You're the same exact way. In fact, there are some things that I've taught like five years ago that I teach completely different now because I'm growing in the Lord. Are you with me? But the question is, how much false teaching can go on in a church and it still be considered a true church? I think that's a great question. And the answer to that, I have none. Except for this. I would ultimately say, I think it comes down to one thing, and that is the truth of the gospel that is being preached. If a person gets the gospel wrong, I don't think that it's a true church. For example, let me just give you two just very quick, quick examples. The Mormon church, none of us would consider a true church. Why? Because of the doctrines of salvation are not consistent with the teaching of the word of God. They distort the person of Jesus and they end the work of Jesus Christ. I think Jehovah's Witness, who claims to be a church, they are not a true church. Why? Because they believe and they teach that you are saved by works and not by grace through faith alone in Jesus Christ. If somebody is going to preach the gospel, and I think this is what it comes down to, because there's going to be other errors and other differences, but to be a true church, you must get the gospel right. What are they? Four things: the sovereignty of God, that God is control of all over all things, and that you and I and all who are created must be subject and glorify Him with all we are. And, and all we with all we are, right? What is the second part? Man's failure, that we have all sinned and we have sh- fallen short of the glory of God, and that because of our sin and because of our rebellion against God. We are deserving of the wrath of God. We've blown it. And guess what? We cannot be good enough to earn our salvation. You can try now for the rest of your life, but it will never pay for the sin that you've already committed. And plus, you will fail time and time again because you have a sin nature within you. Third thing, the work of Jesus Christ. God loved us and sent his only son to die on a cross for you. He did the work that you could not do. He did the work that you could not do. He obeyed the law perfectly. And when he died on the cross, he didn't die for his sins, he died for your sins. Here's the fourth. The fourth is that we are correct response. If we will repent of our sins and we will turn, and we will turn and place our faith in Jesus Christ fully and completely, depend on him for our salvation, then God will save us. See, here's where I think the biggest mistakes of the gospel come. Number one, they don't have a high enough view of God. God is not a holy God. He is a buddy. He is my homeboy. Jesus is not your homeboy. He's the creator of all things. And so what people do is when they do that, they begin to eliminate the, the wrath of God that is being poured out on sin and will be poured out on sin on judgment. Here's the other thing to listen for. The other thing is people belittle our sinfulness. In other words, when they talk about the gospel, they will talk is that you're a pretty good person. You just need a little bit of help, man. Look, you just need a little fixing up. They don't teach the fact that when you and I were lost, that we were dead in our trespasses and sins, and that we could not even respond to God unless he began to do a work inside of our heart. That's the gospel of Jesus Christ. Is that what you know to be the gospel? Is that a reality inside of your heart? Right now we're going to sit back and we're going to have an invitation. What we're gonna do is this, is we're gonna sit back and whatever God has laid on your heart to do and to understand through the preaching of God's word. Great. It may be nothing or very little of what I've said about this morning. Maybe you need to come and pray for your church and pray for me. and Say, we want to be a, a, a church of God's word. But maybe you're coming this morning and going, I'm not saved. I'm not born again. I'm going to be down here to be able to meet and to be able to greet you. Can we stand to our feet and let's pray? Jesus.